Well, we've come to, I think, the last difficult passage in Revelation. I'm just going to read verses 7 through 10. Hear the word of God. Now when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the war, whose number is like the sand of the sea. They arose up onto the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven from God and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a tremendous white throne, and the one who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Father, we come to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have of studying it. And I thank you, Father, that your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It transforms our lives. It gives us faith. It gives us hope. And I pray that you would increase our hope and faith in this congregation to accomplish great things for you as we attempt uh, uh, to accomplish great things as we uh, expect great things from your hand. We love you, we bless you, we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to begin this sermon with some confessions. If uh, Augustine uh, wrote a book of retractions toward the end of his life, uh, I think that Pastor Kaiser can be afforded some retractions. Uh, i give you kind of a history of my approach to this passage. This has been a passage many people have struggled over. And back in the 1970s, I took the common amillennial uh, view that this passage vindicates the idea that things are going to get worse and worse as time progresses until finally at the end of history, uh, the unbelievers will vastly, vastly outnumber the believers. And it made a lot of sense to me. After all, uh, Gog and Magog, uh, the nations, are going to come, it says here, from the four corners of the earth, which I interpreted back then as the four corners of the globe, which means all nations, and that they will be innumerable, like the sand of the sea, which is exactly what the text here says, and will completely surround the beleaguered saints like a suffocating avalanche. I mean, if they're surrounding the saints, surely they are outnumbering the saints, are they not? And to me, that seemed like the most straightforward interpretation of this passage. The true believers would be a tiny minority. Then later, when I reluctantly became a post-millennialist, forced to by other scriptures, I um, had to become a little bit more optimistic about how many Christians would be here at the end of the world. Now, based on one passage, which I have misinterpreted, I assumed that there would be a two-to-one ratio. For every two believers, there would be one unbeliever at the end of time, and so that represented the, the, the falling away toward the end. So it would still be a wheat field, that Christ would come back to, but it would be a heavily infested uh, wheat field, really hard to harvest, because one-third of it would just be filled with tares. Now, I considered the common post-millennial view that I'm going to be presenting to you today to be a little bit ridiculous, a little bit optimistic, at least based on this passage. I just did not see how you could possibly fit that uh, into this passage, but I st and still insisted on wearing the label post-millennialist, so I and Gentry and, and De Chilton, a number of other modern uh, post-millennialists <clears throat> believe, yes, there's going to be a Christianization of the world, there's going to be a long period of peace, but then there's going to be a falling away, and this represents that apostasy, that falling away. So the final generation of believers I held, uh, along with other post-millennialists, to be Christian in name, but in name only. And so it would be very easy for Satan to deceive them at the end of time. So I thought a straightforward reading of the text forced me to believe there's going to be a lot of unbelievers like the sand of the sea. And even though this appears, and post-millennialists have told me this, it appears like 
everything Jesus has worked so hard for has been swept aside by this apostasy, I still comfort myself with the thought that, yes, Scripture is fulfilled, at least in the previous generations, every enemy was put under the feet of Christ, and then there was this small period of apostasy toward the end. My superficial exegesis of this passage seemed to definitively prove that there was a final apostasy. Famous last words. Definitive, right? <laughs> what blew me out of the water uh, not too many years ago was a section of a commentary by Francis Nigel Lee, and he pointed to exegetical problem after problem within the text, and not only within the text, he was pressing to my conscience scriptures that just so clearly seem to indicate that when Christ comes back, it is going to be a thoroughly Christianized world. And I just didn't know what to do uh, with these scriptures. They really challenged my thinking. For example, he would point to 1 Corinthians 15. And I agreed with his exegesis that only enemy, the sole enemy that's going to be remaining when Christ comes back, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is death. Death will be the only thing that has not yet been subdued under his feet, and that will be subdued when he comes back and the resurrection happens. So every other enemy is conquered before that. So that kind of contradicted my interpretation of this passage. But he resolved the problem by showing how this text itself absolutely necessitates that this be describing the long-dead unbelievers and the long-ago bound demons that had just been released from Hades on the very last day of history, and it is not describing the apostasy of the then-living or still-living nations at all. Now, I, once I saw that, it's like, whoa, I can't believe I had not seen that. It's so clear in the text. Now, it may not be clear to you right now, but I hope by the end of this sermon it will be crystal clear to you. Now, since I changed my view on this passage, I've discovered that this was the view of Baptists like John Gill and Presbyterians like B.B. Warfield and church fathers like Hippolytus. Uh, I just missed these guys before. And uh, modern scholars like uh, Martin Selbridi. Actually, Selbridi wrote on this subject back in 1998. I just had never read it. I knew he believed it. And I thought I owned all of the Journal of Reconstruction, uh, but I did not have that volume. I just read it this past week. And I thought, wow. Well, anyway, I was convinced long before I read Salbridi, uh, after reading uh, uh, Francis Nigel Lee, that this world would be 100% Christian when Christ comes back. Now, this interpretation I'm going to be giving to you may at first seem... Uh, very strange, especially if you have been steeped in modern interpretations of Revelation from radio and from other sources. So go ahead and be skeptical. You know I value it when you guys are Bereans and you say, prove it, Phil. I'm from Missouri. Uh, I want to see everything proved from the Scripture. That's a great thing. Uh, the bulk of this sermon is going to be working into the meaning of this passage backwards. And I have to do this in order to throw down every idea that people have uh, placed here, and that will prove the opposite. So I'll only be spending seven, between seven and seven and a half minutes going phrase by phrase through the passage, and it'll be sufficient. You'll see. Um, anyway, this list of problems that I've put into your outlines, this is actually just a tiny introduction of a vast body of verses that I hope to put up onto the web at some point um, that deny a final apostasy as being possible. First one I want to look at is Isaiah 2. We're going to just race through a bunch of these scriptures. After Isaiah 2 describes the thorough conversion of all nations in the world, it goes on to say this in verse 4. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Here's the phrase. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, in Gentry's interpretation, which happened to be my own interpretation not too long ago, we're going to have nations learning war once again. And we're going to have nations raising up sword against other nations once again. So on my old interpretation, nations that were previously Christian 
at least in name, prior to this supposed apostasy, are going to be doing the fighting. But Isaiah 4.2 guarantees that once Jesus has Christianized the nations, no nations will ever learn war again. Now, I think that's a major problem for the apostasy view. Seven chapters later, in Isaiah 9, verse 7, the prophet says of Jesus, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this so this passage guarantees that there will be non-stop growth in terms of both Christ's government and of his peace so Christ is going to be putting down conquering more and more of life and philosophy and other things and he's going to do it in such a way as to reverse, shalom means uh, the, the opposite, that's peace, it means the opposite of everything affected by the curse. So everything affected by the curse is going to eventually be reversed. So what this verse is saying is that gradually over time, Christ's government and shalom will increase from that time forward even forever. And to those who think, well, that's impossible, he has that last phrase there. He says, no problem. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, why is that a problem? Well, on your typical Amil scheme, things are progressively over history getting worse and worse till the last day of history. On your typical post-mill, at least modern post-mill scheme, things are getting better and better. They're advancing, advancing, advancing. And then there is a major setback at the end of history. So there is an end to the increase of uh, Christ's uh, kingdom. <clears throat> so, major contradiction. The whole of Isaiah 11 also seems to be contradicted by that theory as it describes a pervasively Christian world. And verse 9 says of all nations, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. But doesn't Revelation 20 verse 9 describe nations dis surrounding the camp of the righteous and the beloved city and attempting to hurt them. Those are the kind of passages we need to reconcile. Isaiah 66, verse 23 says that from one Sabbath to another, quote, all flesh shall come to worship before me. And the very next verse, which is the last verse of Isaiah, describes the last day of history. The all flesh that has just been sincerely worshiping God, will look upon the corpses of those who have transgressed and see them burning in hell. Well, that perfectly parallels Revelation chapter 20. All flesh, in other words, 100% of men worshiping God, yet later in that same day, looking at a vast multitude of resurrected bodies judged by God in hell. Daniel 2 Verse 35 shows the stone cut without hands, striking the part of the statue that represents Rome. And then it crumbles not just the Rome part, but it crumbles all of that part, gradually grows and fills the earth. And here's what it says uh, about the statue that represents humanism, rebellious humanism. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. Now let me ask, has that been fulfilled yet? I don't think so. Are there traces of Greece and Rome in culture today? Oh yeah. In fact, uh, homeschoolers constantly resurrect Rome and Greece, right? So this says, there will be no trace of them found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So still within the scope of history, there is coming a time when even the dust particles of the rebellious image are being blown away so that eventually no trace of those dust particles can be found. That contradicts this massive apostasy interpretation. The whole of Psalm 37, I think, is a refutation of the apostasy theory. It's a messianic psalm. In other words, it's a prayer of Jesus who's outlining the, uh, the reign of his kingdom. And he starts off by saying, oh yeah, there's innumerable enemies at the beginning of his reign. Just like Psalm 2, he's reigning in the midst of his enemies. But as time goes on, his kingdom progresses so that no enemies can ever be found. So here's what verse 10 says. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. 
but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So that's the goal of history. And verse 29 insists that the righteous will not be dispossessed once again after that. It says, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. So while the righteous possess the land, the whole, the, the whole earth, uh, for, forever, the wicked are no more, and you can carefully search all over this globe for the wicked, and you will not find a wicked person. He says that is the trajectory of history. Has that happened yet? Obviously not, but that's the goal of history. Now, Celebrities and B.B. Warfield's interpretation of Romans 11, if true, leaves no room for apostasy. On their interpretation, all the Gentiles and then all of Israel will be saved at some point in history, and the very next event that happens is a literal resurrection from the dead. That's the end of history once Israel is saved. Or uh, it could be a metaphorical uh, resurrection. Life from the dead is the phrase. Uh, like, like life from the dead, and John Murray says, no, that's going to be even greater blessings that are brought upon the, the, the world. But either way, it shows a pervasive fulfillment of the Great Commission. Sometime, uh, I would encourage those of you who really want to delve into this more, to read Martin Selbrady's fascinating um, interpretation of Matthew 5, verse 18. I think his is a much stronger interpretation than Bonson's. You know, Bonson goes to great length in theonomy and Christian ethics. I've never been able to quite buy that. I buy his conclusions, but not his interpretation of that text. Well, um, let me read the text, and then I'll tell you what he says about it. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, <clears throat> one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. When does heaven and earth pass away? when every jot and tittle of the law is being fulfilled in this world. I found his interpretation of till all is fulfilled very, very convincing. When the law is being 100% lived out in the world, there is nothing left in God's prophetic plan to put under the feet of Christ because it's all been being fulfilled now. So what's the next event in history? The passing away of heaven and earth. Okay, that's, that's his interpretation in a nutshell. And that interpretation perfectly coalesces with the eschatology of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Neither passage leaves room for a final apostasy. And I've listed a sampling of other scriptures that require all to be believers at the end of history. And of course, this has forced me to rethink uh, Matthew 24. Joel's been on me and on me about this. Phil, Dad, I think you're wrong on this. And as I've restudied this, I do think that the break has to come later than what I've taught even in this series on Revelation. So yet another retraction, right? Uh, it's a minor point, but it is uh, an important one. Now Hebrews 12, verse 27 is another passage that is often overlooked. It's, it shows a spiritual shaking that replaces everything that can be shaken. That's pretty universal. And leaving nothing but the good that cannot be shaken. And there is no reversal. It says, now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now the victory of the kingdom of heaven remains on earth during history and even into eternity. And in context of the Haggai passage that Hebrews is exegeting, those all things include all nations. That's the key point. Hebrew, uh, Haggai 2, verse 7, which Hebrews is exegeting, says, And I will shake all nations, and they who, all nations, shall come to the desire of all nations. That's a title for Jesus. Everybody agrees with that. I will shake all nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if, as Hebrews asserts, all things will be transformed by Christ in history and will remain, then that includes all converted nations. But the apostasy view says that all nations do not remain as Christian nations. Many of them apostatize. They do not remain. These and many other scriptures are used by, if you want to do more research, by Warfield, Bettner, Rush Dooney, Saunders, McElhenney, Ned Stonehouse, Francis Nigel Lee, Martin Selbrady, 
uh, to prove that Christ's victory in history will be a true victory, a permanent victory showcased in the consistently Christianized world that fulfills the Great Commission by obeying all things that Christ has commanded. The Great Commission will not only be a full success, it will never be reversed. That's the thing I'm wanting to press home in this, in this point. It will never be reversed. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 declares that at the end of history, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. So he's talking about evangelism. You know, you go up to an unbeliever and say, wow, you really need to know the Lord. Uh, God is awesome. And you try to lead him to Christ. He says, there's coming a time you won't be able to find an unbeliever to convert. So he says this, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them, a phrase that everybody agrees, refers to little kids, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now it's quite clear that it's not merely a tiny percentage of the world's population that is saved. It says they shall all know me. Now, some of this is probably blowing your minds. Like, really, could this be true? Evangelism will no longer need to take place. The kingdom of heaven will, by that time, have pervasively leavened the lump. So, you know, some people long for the good old days in America. I don't. I long for the good new days of the future, right? And isn't that what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How well is God's will being done in heaven? It's being done perfectly in heaven. And in this prayer, we are praying it would be just as pervasively done on earth. Now, when he gave us the Lord's Prayer, is Jesus just giving us idle words that mean nothing, that are impossible to ever be fulfilled? Is he telling us to pray for something that is utterly outside of his will? And I say, no. Is the Great Commission impossible to fulfill? I say, no. He does not give us an empty command. That Great Commission will be fulfilled. The question is not possibility. The question is, what has God commanded? What is his purpose? How great is your view of God's grace? How great is your view of the Great Commission? Or do you still believe that Satan and sin are greater than God's grace? I think subjectively, even though intellectually we would deny that, subjectively we kind of feel that God's grace is not powerful enough to handle all of this evil and rebellion that's in the world. But let me read you something from yet another verse. Romans 5, 20 through 21 shows that Christ's grace will end up causing Christ's reign of righteousness to be much more pervasive than sin and death has ever been on planet Earth. Much more pervasive. Why? It says this. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that just as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. But most eschatologies really do not take that seriously. They have the reign of sin and death as being far more powerful than the reign of sin and righteousness and life through Christ. And all mills will respond, well, that may be true in, in, in history, Phil, but if you look at it in light of eternity, then grace is going to be far more than it is on earth. And my response to the all mills, really, on your interpretation, is that true? On, on, on the all millennial interpretation, there will be far more people in hell, vastly greater numbers in hell than will ever be in heaven. So even in eternity, that verse is not fulfilled. On B.B. Warfield's interpretation, by the time you get to the end of history, whether it's 100,000 years from now, 10,000, whenever, we don't know the time, but by the time you get to the end of history, the numbers of people in heaven will vastly, vastly outnumber the, uh, the people in, in hell. His grace will reign and triumph in history and in eternity far more than sin and death has ever triumphed. That's what that verse means. Now, I've just barely dipped into the, 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 the scriptures that we could look at. Uh, chapter 21, by the way, picks up on a lot of this 
these scriptures. So we'll look at more of those scriptures in the future. But I wanted to give enough just to show that systematic theology seems to contradict the apostasy interpretation. And when you see something like that happen, you say, whoa, 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 but I thought that the exegetical arguments in Revelation 20 show the opposite. So all it does, systematic theology, it's a check and balance. We're not reading into the text anything. We're just saying, well, maybe my interpretation, maybe I've made some mistakes on Revelation 20. We'll just reevaluate it and look at it. And that's where the next point comes in. It's not just systematic theology that shows problems with the apostasy view. Exegetical theology also demands that this theory be reevaluated. Um, there are no contradictions in Scripture, but let, let's look at some of the hints here in the text itself. First of all, Revelation 20 requires that Satan's release and deception of nations occur on the last day of history, not years before the last day, as is absolutely required by the apostasy theory. Whether it's held to by all mills, post mills, or pre mills, it doesn't matter. It absolutely requires quite a long period of time. You see, the apostasy theory requires for people to, who, who are at least pretending to be Christians, uh, it requires them uh, to have time to gather from Africa, Asia, Russia, Europe, and America to build arms, to coalesce under a wicked leader, and uh, to supposedly uh, work through the United Nations in order to exterminate Christianity. There's no time for that to take place if Satan is released on the last day of history. So the apostasy advocates say that a conspiracy foments over a period of years. And in comparison to all of history, they say it is a short time. He's released for a short time. Short time's not really defined in the Scripture. It could be a few minutes, a few hours, could be a few days, uh, but short time is not defined. But they say it could, it could be up to a few years. But let's see if this holds up. There are six references that I have underlined in my Bible that uh, if you want to underline them, it really helps everything to pop out. First, look at, and they all deal with the phrase 4,000 years. Look at verse 2. It says, And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was a slanderer, even Satan, who deceives the whole inhabited earth, and bound him for a thousand years. Notice that phrase, for a thousand years. He does not get out before the thousand years is finished. Look at verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. And then it goes on to describe him being released for a short, undefined period. But notice that his deceptive work cannot happen until the thousand years is finished. It's not before they're finished. It's when they're finished. Look at the last sentence in verse 4. Speaking of the saints, it says, And they lived and reigned with Christ, for a thousand years. That's the same Greek. They don't stop their reign any earlier, and there's no evidence from Scripture that their reign gets interrupted for a few years. No, they reign for the exactly the same duration that Satan is bound. Now, since I interpret the short time of verse 3 as exactly one hour long, and I'll give you the proof of that in a little bit, it's based on John chapter 5, two verses in there, uh, this can be taken very literally, and we'll get to that in a bit. Okay, then look at verse 5. When does the second resurrection happen? It says, Now the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. In other words, that happens at exactly the same terminal point of each of the other events. I, I believe they are resurrected on the same day that Satan is released. Then look at the last two clauses of verse 6. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Then verse 7 repeats an earlier thought. Now when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison. Well, when you compare that with verse 5, that's the exact same time when the rest of the dead are released and resurrected. Six times John emphasizes that all these things happen at exactly the same time. The first exegetical issue, it is huge. They, he links these things together. They all happen together. Now let's look at some further proofs that verses 7 through 10 is dealing with the events of Resurrection Day. The next proof is that Gog and Magog are at least part of the nations that gather against the saints. Now there's a 
major problem if you're dealing with still living Christian nations. First, Christian nations would not be identified with Gog and Magog, even as a symbol, because in the Old Testament, they never were, uh, they never were uh, believing nations. So it doesn't really uh, fit. But more to the point, 100% of Gog and Magog are suffering in Hades right now. According to God's inerrant word, not a one survived. And even premillennialists agree that this battle of Gog and Magog has to be different than the battle of Ezekiel 38 through 39. So I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel 38 through 39, and I want to show you that none of Gog and Magog survived that early, earlier battle, not a single soldier. Now, in my Esther series, which I just noticed, Josh, are not all up, I put another one of the Esther things up, but we need to get more of those things up. But in that Esther series, I proved with detailed exegesis that the great battle of Ezekiel 38 through 39 happened in the time of Esther to bring God's people to repentance, to bring them back from the nations. Now, Remnant had already returned to Israel, but the bulk of Israel had not. But Haman the Agagite, he was one of the members of the Gog nation, sought to exterminate Israel. God, by a remarkable series of providences, turned that all around and had 100% of Gog and Magog killed. Now, there are some people who are not even familiar with those historical facts. They say, where do we fit this in? Can't happen at the end of history. Where does it fit? So they try to fit it in chapter 19, right before the thousand years, and that simply will not work. There are many problems with that, but for today, don't worry about that controversy. For today, whether it happens in chapter 19 or whether it happened back in the time of Esther, they're all dead. There are none from Gog and Magog, so if they're fighting in Revelation 20, it's got to be resurrected Gog and Magog people who are fighting in that battle. Does that make sense? The logic there, that's where, that's where we're going. So let me see if I can make my case. Uh, let's start reading in Ezekiel 38, and I'll read verse uh, 21. I will call for a sword against Gog, and Mag uh, against Gog throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Look at chapter 39, verse 4. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field uh, to be devoured. Notice that the troops of Gog and Magog are destroyed in all of the peoples that they are associated with. Uh, look at chapter 39, verse 7. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them profane my name any more. So, if they, even if you were to discount everything that, that I'm, I'm going to be sh showing you right now, and you think, oh yeah, Gog and Magog survived, you still have to deal with that phrase that God would never allow Gog and Magog to profane his name by trying to annihilate God's people, and yet that's precisely what the apostasy theory uh, says will happen. Okay, look at verse 11, chapter 39, verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by the east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers, because there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. Now if Gog and all of his multitude are buried, they can't be around today. So Gog and Magog are 100% eradicated in the time of Esther, and the only way they could be around at that time is if they are unleashed from Hades at exactly the same time that Satan is unleashed from Hades. Now, keep your fingers in uh, Ezekiel 38 through 39, because I want to mention one more clue about Gog and Magog from Revelation 20. That clue is that our text says, Gog and Magog, quote, are in the four corners of the land. And we have seen throughout Revelation that the word gase, or earth, or land, the word gase refers to the land of Israel. So here's the question. Did all of Gog and Magog die and get buried in Israel? And it appears to be so. Let me read you some phrases from those scriptures in Ezekiel. Back to Ezekiel 38, verse 21. I will call for a sword against Gog. Where? Throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. So they died within the boundaries of Israel. Uh, Ezekiel 39, verse 4, you shall fall, where? 
upon the mountains of Israel. You and all your troops and the peoples who are with you, I will give you to birds of prey of every sort, to the beasts of the field to be devoured. So God had ordained that they die in Israel so that their resurrection would take place from the four corners of the land of Israel. Now, there are other nations that join with them too, but at least Gog and Magog are highlighted here because it's resurrection. John, I think, is giving us a clue. You know, everybody knows amongst the Israelites, Gog and Magog, they're long gone, they're history. So I'm giving you a clue. The nations I am talking about are dead nations, nations that are in the earth. And we'll, we'll give some other clues as well. Um, and it may explain, by the way, why they pick on the closest capital uh, from where they get resurrected, uh, the Christianized capital of Israel. Okay, look at uh, Ezekiel 39, verse 11 and following. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land, and when anyone sees a man's bone, he will set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus, they shall cleanse the land. And there are several other verses that show that the bodies of Gog and Magog are buried in the land of Israel. So it really makes sense that God's going to have them resurrected where they got buried, right? In the land of Israel in Revelation 20. But was Gog and Magog like the sand of the sea? That's what people complain about. They say, yeah, it appears to be. It took seven months for them to bury all of those bodies. And you look how long they burned the arrows and the other armaments. Wow, it must have been an enormous horde. And three times he uses the word hemon, multitude, to describe them. And he calls the place where they're buried the Valley of Haman Gog, or Multitude Gog. Now, of course, I believe they were just two representatives of all nations that were in rebellion against God in history. But at least they rise in history. Okay, back to Revelation 20. We're almost done with the background stuff. The third exegetical problem with the apostasy view is that the unbelieving nations are said in the future to have, this is verse 9, arose up onto the breadth of the earth. Now the word for arose up is the same word that's used of demons who earlier arose up from the abyss. In Revelation 9, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 7, chapter 13, verse 11, chapter 17, verse 8. So when those nations arose up from the earth, where were they? They were in Hades. They were in the center of the earth. Now, if you are understandably skeptical, I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 because the Apostle Paul makes an, uh, a theological deduction from that specific word, the exact same word, Ephesians 4. 8 through 9. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, there's that word. What does it, what does that word ascended on a bino, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. The lower parts of the earth is defined in the scripture as, as Hades. So he says the implication of that word that he ascended necessarily means he had to first descend into the lower parts of the earth. He had to descend into Hades. So Christ's soul was in Hades. His body was in the grave, in the earth. And the same language that's used of Christ is used in Revelation when Christ's soul came up out of Hades and was united to his body, it uses the language, same language here as these people's souls. So their bodies are in the land. <coughs> That's verse 8. Their souls are in Hades, and they come up and uh, are resurrected. So it says, uh, next, they arose up onto the breadth 
uh, of the earth or the land. And by the way, again, it's not just post-millennialists who hold to uh, that these are resurrected nations. Uh, w. Metzger sees these resurrected nations as the nations that have previously fought before the thousand years in chapter 19. Now, I disagree with that part, but he says it absolutely has to be resurrected nations. Um, uh, Matthias Risi says, this is the kingdom of all the dead in the underworld. Uh, premillennialists like J. Webb Mealy. They've done some fabulous technical writing, and I can't get technical in a sermon, but you want to read some technical writing, read Mealy's uh, premillennial commentary on this. He says, it absolutely, 7 through 10, has to be the second resurrection. That's all that it's talking about, second resurrection. There's some very strong exegesis to back it up. Thus, if you're looking at Revelation 20, where, where verses 4 through 6 primarily dealt with the first resurrection, that's before the thousand years, verses 7 through 10 deal with the second resurrection that's mentioned in the parentheses of verse 5. First resurrection happens before the thousand years, second resurrection happens at the end of the thousand years. Now, not all agree with me that... The second resurrection comes in two phases. I believe the ungodly are raised first, then the righteous are raised. But even amongst those who believe there are two phases, some invert it. Like Francis Nigel Lee believes that the righteous are raised first, and then a few minutes later the, uh, the unrighteous are, are, are raised up. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll deal more with that next week. But let me outline, uh, if you look at your outline, you'll see it, uh, the order of events that happens on the last day of history with probably only an hour separating all of those events. Briefly, both Matthew 13 and Revelation 20 show the non-elect rising first, and I'll prove that in a bit, with the elect rising later that day. So if you look at Revelation 20, again, verses 7 through 10 is the resurrection of those not in the book of life, Verses 11 through 13 shows the resurrection of those who are in the book of life. And verse 13, which I left out, makes that very clear. Based on John 5, I believe they are raised within the same hour of that day. There's only about an hour that separates the resurrection of the ungodly, resurrection of the godly. And there's, so there's even an order amongst, if you want to be technical, when the right, righteous get raised, 1 Thessalonians, I give him the passage there, says that the dead rise first then those of us who are alive will rise second. So that's the general order. But I want you to turn with me to Matthew 13. And Jesus gave the parable of the wheat and the tares. That parable indicates that the tares will be resurrected first. They're even going to be bound before the wheat gets resurrected. Matthew 13, we'll begin reading at verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest... And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I'll deal in a bit with both growing together, because that can be a confusing part of it. Um, but here it says, First, gather the tares, then gather the wheat. That's the important thing I'm wanting to emphasize uh, there. Now take a look at verse 37, where Jesus uh, interprets this parable. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. Now there are many people who interpret the field as the church. But Jesus is quite explicit. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those that, who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teach, teeth, and the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He was ears to hear. Let him hear. So the tares from the beginning of time to the end of time are still in Christ's kingdom. Okay, Philippians 2.10 says, even those who right now are in Hades, those who are uh, uh, those under the earth, that's Hades, must acknowledge Christ's lordship. 
Uh, they're certainly suffering under Christ's judgment in Hades. Now, I used to think that tares and wheat were the generation then growing at the end of history, but the parable is quite clear. Tares represent all believe, unbelievers from all time, or as he words it, the sons of the wicked one. How does an unbeliever from 2,000 years ago, or even 6,000 years ago, how does he get separated from the wheat and Jesus say to him, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He's not even around then. He's not one of the living nations. So how does he get separated? Well, it can only be at the time of the resurrection. Uh, he, um, Matthew 25 talks about the resurrection and the separation of the goats and the sheep. Well, this is the separation of the wheat and the tares. Um, but why did God prohibit the tares from being removed from the world? In other words, from being killed prematurely. If you're removed from the world, you're killed, is what it amounts to. So it's not talking about the church, it's talking about removed from the world. So for the tares of the last 6,000 years to be removed from the world means to be killed prematurely. Why does Jesus prohibit that? It's because it would prevent all the descendants of those tares from getting converted in the future. Here's how Sel Brady words it. Had the tear, Terah, been gathered while his son Abraham was still in his loins, Abraham would have been uprooted as well. He would never have been born. Thus, every unsaved man will either, one, eventually bear elect offspring in a future generation, hence the emphatic warning to leave the tares alone, or two, have his posterity cut off, Psalm 37. The relational logic reduces to a syllogism assuring a fully converted earth by the end of time. So Christ was talking about the resurrection of tares, not the presence of tares in the final generation. That's the key point. But in terms of timing, Matthew 13.30 is clear. First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, if the ungodly have been resurrected, just try to imagine this in your head. The wicked ungodly have been resurrected, been given glorified bodies, and glorified bodies are far more powerful. They have abilities and powers our bodies have never had. <clears throat> it may very well enable them to be more easily deceived by Satan into thinking, hey, you guys have a chance of actually winning this battle. Look at these... Look at these people, these saints that are on the earth. They got normal bodies. You got glorified bodies. You got powers that they do not have. We outnumber them. We're in the trillions and trillions. They are not in the trillions. So it may very well be that that is why uh, Satan was able to deceive them into thinking that they could uh, do uh, this successfully. But before they can do so, God judges them, raises the righteous, and God separates the righteous from the unrighteous nations, just as Matthew 25 declares. So in order for the parable of the tares, I should say the order that you see there in Matthew 13 is exactly the same order in Revelation 20. They're all resurrected on the same day, and um, actually John 5 twice indicates within the same hour. So let's see, do I need to repeat this? Verses 7 through 10 deals with the resurrection of the ungodly. Then verses 11 through 13 deal with the resurrection of the godly. But it all highlights how incredibly short this last rebellion against a Christianized world will be. It takes place on one day, and if we take John 5 literally, within one hour. That gives perspective. It's a one-hour rebellion. Uh, that, that's how small it is. There are some exegetes who think the righteous will be raised before the wicked are, but within minutes of each other, not an hour. Now, if that view is correct, then the resurrected ungodly attack the resurrected godly and or rush the throne of God before God puts them into place. I don't buy that, and the reason I don't buy that is that the resurrected nations seem too far outnumber, at this point, the living generation that's out there. Don't they surround them? So there's no way that they could outnumber all of the resurrected elect. So that's why I, I don't see that. But solid exegetes stand on both sides. And you might be lost by now <laughs> because we've been dealing with different views. So let me take seven to seven and a half minutes to read through the text very quickly. You can time me if you want. Uh, I'm going to try to stick to seven to seven and a half minutes going through this text. And we're going to start with verse seven. 
Now, when the thousand years are finished, so I take that as the last day of history, and actually one hour on the last day of history, Satan will be released from his prison. I take that as a literal prison in the heart of the earth, not symbolical like some people take it, where all other demons and all of the other non-elect have been. It's the place called Abyss or Hades earlier in the book. Text goes on to say, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the land. Now, currently, when John was writing this book, Gog and Magog, the chief representatives of those who hate, were buried in the land of Israel. Word in the New King James, earth is gase, or land, and the word in is en. So in John's day, they were very literally in the land. They were buried there. The verse goes on to define the nations as at least containing Gog and Magog. Now, I've already proved that they had been dead for hundreds of years, so no wonder he says they're currently in the land. goes on to say, to gather them together to the war. Which war? Well, the war that's been going on ever since Satan fell, but got interrupted when he and all of his demons at some point in history are cast into the pit and when the um, world has been converted. So he's now resuming the war. Satan is determined to do everything in his power to either defeat Jesus or go down trying. Well, he, he, he's going, the nation's going to go down along with him. But the resurrected nations don't know that yet. The next phrase describes the people that have been around with him in Hades that he's now going to try to use. He knows about these people. He's been with them thousands of years whose number is like the sand of the sea. Now that too would have reminded them of Ezekiel 38 through 39 uh, where there's this multitude uh, that have a demonic hatred for God, but many commentators believe that the innumerable multitude includes all represented by Gog and Magog. Verse 9, they arose up onto the breadth of the earth. Now the word they arose up, according to the Apostle Paul, logically necessitates that they had previously descended into the heart of the earth, or Hades, Ephesians 4, 8 through 9, and doubly so here in Revelation, since the same word has been used four times to refer to demons arising from Hades or the abyss. Revelation 9, 2, 11, 7, 13, 11, and 17, 8. But the prepositions of that phrase are particularly interesting. There is an up followed by an onto, implying that they are underneath what they get raised up and onto. So they're in Hades, they get resurrected up and then onto the land. Okay? And the place that they get raised up is Gase, we've already mentioned, land of Israel. It says they were raised up onto the breadth of the land, which makes sense since Ezekiel 39 says, hey, the bones of Gog and Magog are scattered over the entire Israel, all the land, the breadth of the land. If it's a real resurrection, they're going to get raised near where they got buried, which is everywhere in the land of Israel. So again, a literal approach to the text fits rather well. Focus is not on all nations, but where Gog and Magog get resurrected. The next phrase says, and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Now, commentators are divided on what that means. The word camp is parambole and means either fortified camp, headquarters, or army. Well, systematic theology helps us to get rid of two of those definitions. We've already seen that all of the swords are beaten into plowshares. They're not going to have weaponry. So it's very unlikely that fortified camp is true. And we've already seen they will not learn war anymore, so it's very unlikely that an army is true. So I take it as the headquarters, which is the second meaning. It's the headquarters of the capital city. But in any case, at least the general meaning of God's people being taken off guard and being in deep, deep trouble is hard to miss. They're just used to peace. They've had peace for, what, thousands of years probably. So they're used to peace. They've not seen any armies. They don't have any normal weapons that they can use. And by the way, normal weapons wouldn't have worked against resurrected ungodly and against demons. You've got trillions of demons converging on them. You've got trillions of resurrected humans converging on them. And so a very intimidating scene. But before anything can happen to God's people, before any peace can be disturbed, God intervenes. The next phrase says, and fire came down out of heaven from God and devoured them. God's fiery wrath from heaven is soon followed by a fiery second death, which is separation from God and Christ's kingdom forever in the lake of fire. So it says, and the devil, 
who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I've already described this lake of fire in detail in a previous sermon. It could very well be a literal huge sun which is liquid gases on fire cast out of this universe, out of the sight of anything in this universe. Or it could be something that's in a third dimension, sort of like heaven seems to be in a third dimension. And some of you have mentioned that to me, and it actually makes a good sense, especially since if it was a huge sun right near the earth, that would uh, not work too well. But in the third dimension, there could be a heaven and there could be a hell. So there's good arguments for that, and especially since Isaiah 66 indicates the saints can see into hell on that final day. We talked about why the beast and the false prophet got there first in a previous sermon as well, and we talked in depth about the nature of hell and eternal torment in a previous sermon. So that's all I'm going to say on the passage, but I do want to end with five applications. First, this is the definitive passage that people use to show an apostate world at the end of time. But when you see these nations as resurrected nations, it shows the exact opposite. The saints are those who are alive in that final generation, and Gog and Magog are the nations who have been long dead. So this means that the last reason to be pessimistic about the future should have been removed from your worldview. View the future with faith and hope. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This lost world, the world that Satan, that Satan took away basically from Adam, the first Adam, will be 100% regained by the second Adam. So, Second, even trillions of demons and resurrected humans, all led by Satan, are no match for God. He stopped them in a moment of time. It's not the strength of the enemy that should be our focus, but the power and the purpose of God. Third, what is God's purpose in history? Is it to allow humanism to continue to dominate and overpower? No, the Great Commission tells us that his goal is to Christianize the world, to baptize all nations, to teach all nations, to keep everything that Christ has commanded us. And what has Christ commanded us? Let me once again read Matthew 5, 17 to 19. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Heaven and earth will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. The Great Commission is a mandate to teach every nation to obey all that. And nothing less than that does justice to the Great Commission. Or as Paul words it, History will not end until all enemies are subdued under the feet of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. Every knee bows before him, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Every facet of creation except for death is transformed by his grace, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Christ in Matthew 5 declared all lawlessness to be at enmity with him, and his purpose in history is to what? Put all enemies under his feet. It's to put down all enmity. Fourth, this means that when the church is lawless, it is hindering the final goal of history, and Christ demotes the church. There's a reason why the American church is powerless, why it has been demoted. Jesus said they're good for nothing but to be cast out and trampled under foot of men. That means humanism will dominate. You're under their feet. That's where we're at right now. So Matthew 5:19 says, if you teach and uh, people to break the law of God. You know, we're not under law, we're under grace. Uh, a misinterpretation of Paul's statement there. If you teach that, Jesus said, you are going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to be demoted, as it were. But if you keep it, and you teach the keeping of it, including the least of these commandments, which is a command not to take a mother bird with its young, then the church will be promoted. And when the church is promoted, it will have a powerful impact upon the world. 
And then last, so all, since all of history is headed toward this telos, that is this goal, we hasten the final day of history by the church's holy conduct and godliness, according to 2 Peter 3, verse 12. Now, I have no idea how you can hasten a predestined day, but that's what Peter says. 2 Peter asserts that ethical conduct and holiness somehow hastens the final day of history. So read 2 Peter 3.12 in light of Matthew 5.17-19 sometime, and I think you'll see heaven and earth cannot pass away until the ethical behavior of all in this world is faithful to Jesus. And thus Peter says that without the gospel transforming all of ethics, what he calls holy conduct, we cannot hasten that day. But when we can have a faith that our labors in the Lord are not in vain, it will energize us. It'll make us uh, want to make a difference in this world. Galatians 6 calls us to not grow weary in doing good, knowing that in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So brothers and sisters, I hope I've given you one more foundation of faith and hope in the future, that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. The size and power of the enemy around us is utterly immaterial. If God overthrows the worst of the worst of the worst in a moment of time at the end of history, he can deal with our enemies right now. He converted every man, woman, and child that was hostile. When you read the archaeology, the demonic, uh, filthy culture of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and yet in one day he converted, and Matthew says it was a sound conversion, every man, woman, and child in that city, he can do the same today. It's not his power. In fact, I think in part it was because of the faith of Jonah. He wished he didn't have faith because he wanted them judged. He, he, here's a sourpuss prophet, you know. Because he has faith, an entire city gets converted. Can you imagine what would happen if the whole church of Jesus Christ would man up, would have the kind of manly, post-millennial faith that the Scripture calls for? I believe God would be honored, but he is not honored when the church acts like the ten spies who talked Israel out of taking on the land of Canaan. He is honored by men and women like Joshua and Caleb. May we have faith like they did. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenges, challenges for study, uh, the difficult passages that uh, uh, actually poke holes in the bad parts of our systems. Help us, Father, to constantly reevaluate our systems and to bring them into conformity with your word. I pray that you would bless this, your people, with faith and hope and courage and boldness for the future. Uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.